1: Welcome to the Maris Review, I'm Maris Kreisman, and what a delight to be joined today by a New York Times bestselling author, who I for sure have a parasocial relationship with, who I get to talk to directly for the first time. Aubrey Gordon writes under the pseudonym of Your Fat Friend, illuminating the experiences of fat people and urging greater compassion for people of all sizes. Her work has reached millions of readers and has been translated into 19 languages. She's co-host of Maintenance Phase Podcast and a columnist with Self Magazine. She lives in the New York She lives in the Northwest, where she works as a writer and organizer. And her new book is called You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People.
2: Aubrey, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a treat to like actually be here after weeks of voice failing.
1: As I said before, you sound great.
2: Thanks. I appreciate it. I totally appreciate it. I'm like excited to be able to talk again. It's a very strange thing to have a book launch where you can't physically speak, which is like your whole job around a book launch. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And yeah, I saw yesterday that you had to delay maintenance phase and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just so glad she can talk to me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We sat down to record and Mike was like, Your voice is changing enough as we talk that this is going to be very hard to edit. I was like, all right, fair enough. Mm. Here we go. I hope
1: you can get back to it. I'm rushing you along because I want your voice to last. So tell me about the project of myth busting because I know you mentioned in your introduction to this book, like, yes, this is allowing other people to set the terms. There are so many pervasive myths Yeah. And not a lot of debunking.
2: So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, so listen, I come to this work from the perspective of an organizer and someone who wants to, like, make lasting change in policies and institutions and culture. And that starts with individual people's thinking, right? And myth busting from that perspective is a really fraught activity, right? You say the wrong thing. So, that you can then go on to say the right thing. So, you're leading with an inaccurate thing, which doesn't feel great. And at the same time, this is a really commanding majority of emails that we get from maintenance phase listeners and from readers, right? Like, these are myths that continue to plague fat people, not just in an annoying microaggressions kind of way but in a way that ends up restricting our access to things like healthcare and transportation and education and all kinds of stuff, right? It felt important to, A, make sure that's not on every individual fat person every time to answer all of these questions from scratch and to like mount a defense of themselves, but rather to have like a resource that folks can go to, right? And B, you know, I think of this less as a project about like, this is the book that you hand to the most anti fat person you know. Like, don't give this book to Bill Maher, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't, he's good. We don't need him. He's sad. But this is like maybe the book that you give to Bill Maher's neighbor, who's like really kind of up to here with his nonsense about fat people who then gets the grounding that they need to be able to do what they already know how to do, which is speak up about this kind of stuff. So like, that's my hope, is that it gets to the people next to the people and that those people find the sort of, you know, courage and strength to speak up about this kind of stuff.
1: I love this and I love that each chapter ends with some questions or some Mm -hmm. action steps, concrete things that a listener or a reader can do.
2: Yeah, it felt important, again, like, look, man, awareness is only as good as the change that it delivers. People can be aware of things all day long, (laughs) but if that doesn't change their actions, if that doesn't create material change in the lives of fat people, then like, what are we doing team? (laughs) So it felt really important to give folks not just action steps that they could do from sort of wherever they are in their lives, however they're positioned in their worlds, but also some reflection questions like, You know, for folks who are really uncomfortable with the word fat and find themselves correcting fat people when we identify as such, spending some time thinking about like, what do you attach to the word fat? What makes you so uncomfortable about it? What are you sort of piling? What's the baggage that you're bringing to that word? Mm -hmm. And how do you strip that away so that you can hear where other folks are coming from on their own terms? That stuff also felt really important because a lot of this stuff is like very deeply linked to self-work that a lot of us are avoiding a lot of the time, which is 100%. sort of like looking under the rock of like, how do you feel about fatness? Oh, it's bad news under there. It's, back down. <laughs> <It's>
1: like, <laughs> <"Whoa."> <laughs> yeah. Even taking a look, um, Audrey, one of the, a big project of maintenance phase that also runs through all of your other work, including this book, is debunking studies that I might have once read and took to be fact. And the overall being more critical of data, something that I feel like you have helped me to rethink every time I am confronted with statistics.
2: I really appreciate that. First of all, that's the thing that I feel like I have picked up from Michael Hobbs, so I'm happy to pass it right along to you too. Great pay it forward. <laughs> it's territory. Again, this feels like fraught territory to me that it gets really easy to get into like anti-science land. But I think there is a difference between being anti-science and reading the science closely and reading what it's actually saying, right? I think one of the big ones of these for me in the writing of this book was this idea that 400,000 or 360,000 Americans die every year just being fat, right? That like somebody just gets so fat, they just drop dead. The end which like of course we've all known countless people who just got so fat they had to die like not a thing it's not a thing not a thing not a thing and when you read the actual study that came from first of all it's cited one bajillion times by other researchers who are saying this is nonsense and it doesn't make sense to me so like red flag number one red flag number two is if you actually read the methodology section they state plainly that they assume that every fat person who died in excess of every thin person died because they were fat. They didn't look at death certificates. They didn't do any kind of autopsies. They didn't do any kind of analysis. They just assumed if more fat people died than thin people, those fat people died of being fat, not of being in a plane crash, not of being struck by lightning, <laughs> not of being tied to the train tracks by Snidely Whiplash, right? Like, yeah. not of any of those things, but just you were so fat and then you died, right? That feels like pertinent information for a conversation that we've now been having for 20 years that has taken this really alarmist bent and has really started to scapegoat fat people for being some kind of social contagion and being to blame for death rates of people and being to blame for our own mortality and all kinds of stuff, it feels worth getting into the weeds on this stuff and sort of figuring out how to sort the wheat from the chaff a little bit.
1: For sure. And then another thing that you explain so well in the book and in your other work is, well, who are these statistics for? (laughs) And it's always like, ah, the man. Totally.
2: Well, I'll tell you who they're not for. And that is these statistics. And also like an overwhelming majority of the research that I did for this book that we do for the show doesn't actually include much that is instructive for how to get fat people better health care. It's all just how to get fat people unfat, which is a thing we categorically don't know how to do. And even if we did... It's very weird to be like, our medical priority is to make everyone look the same. That's a very strange thing rather than saying, our medical priority is to screen everyone's A1C and you know catch folks' blood sugar as it's on the rise. Or our medical priority is to make sure that more people have blood pressure cuffs and can test their own blood pressure at home. Or our medical priority is to do cancer screenings early and often, or to screen for the actual health issues that we use fatness as a proxy for. But we keep doing that because it allows us to believe what we already kind of want to believe, which is that fat bodies are failures and thin bodies are accomplishments. And medicalizing that makes it seem like an even bigger deal, like-
1: hmm. Yeah, and then if you can find a drug that works to make fat people thin, then the drug companies could really cash in.
2: Yeah, totally. The drug companies can really cash in. They can create a fun little shortage for people who need that medication to stay alive. Hi. Hi. Oh, hello. Hi. (laughs) And you know, it has been really fascinating. I will say on that front to hear particularly on the maintenance phase end of life from so many healthcare providers who are like, I keep telling people no about this and they keep not taking no for an answer on these weight loss injections. And I am at a loss as to like how to proceed. And it just feels really tricky. Like I I also don't know what to do with that, aside from have a general feeling of rage
1: at no Rourke. Yes.
2: <laughs> like, just,
1: just ambient anger all the time. Ambient anger has to work. And I think that's kind of encouraging what you just said, because at mm. least you're hearing from healthcare providers who know that this is the problem. Like so much of what you talk about is that There are so many different ways doctors make everything worse. They're so biased.
2: It's a really tricky thing. I mean, like doctors and healthcare providers are absolutely just like the rest of us, which is they're products of a society that sort of reviles and rejects fatness wherever it comes across it. And the tricky thing is there are two important differences. One is that healthcare providers have an immense amount of power, whether or not they feel that power. They're like pretty directly navigating someone else's mortality for them. I don't know what's more powerful than that. And the other important difference is that healthcare providers go through training And at least in the case of medical school for doctors, that training, there's not enough data on this. There needs to be more, but there's some indication that medical school actually tends to increase that bias and intensify it over time, which makes sense when you hear from medical students about sort of the lectures that they are getting on the daily about fat patients, the instruction that they are getting is that you need to tell fat patients to lose weight at every visit. And if you don't, you're not doing your job, right? And you will be judged and graded and assessed on that. And that's a systemic issue. Do you know what I mean? That's not like an issue of like, there are 1 million doctors trying to be terrible people. That is, we got a system that is producing this kind of bias and seems inclined to increase it. And that is a problem worth tackling. (laughs)
1: 100%. And it seems like this is the first line of questioning always. like, Mm. It's not like, what else is going on? also you should lose weight here is your main problem
2: yeah i mean i think listen this is a thing that comes up in particular my organizing background part of it was organizing to make oregon one of the first states to require coverage of transition-related care for trans people gender-affirming care for trans people and one of the most frustrating and heartbreaking and challenging and intractable things about that is that different surgeons will set different BMI thresholds for when and whether they're willing to provide what is life-saving essential care for trans people. So trans people for whom you know death rates go down of trans people when trans people have access to the healthcare that they need. Those folks are being sent away from healthcare providers, being told to lose a certain amount of weight. That fluctuates from surgeon to surgeon in order to access this really basic care without ever really grappling with the fact that scientifically, we of course, we know how to produce short-term weight loss. We don't know how to produce long-term lasting weight loss in anybody. So these are folks who are getting sent away to do what is, you know, temporarily achievable and permanently nigh on impossible, right? And that's the stick and the carrot is... The healthcare that will keep you alive, right? Like that, like we we can't operate that way, team. <laughs> that seems horrible. That's not how healthcare should work. Come on, guys. We can do better than this. It seems like we ought to be
1: able to, right?
2: <laughs> oh, and
1: and I think within that, there's also I have been body shamed by my doctor.
2: Boy, oh boy, sorry, bud.
1: There's really this idea that all weight loss is good and that good. if you're losing weight you're doing something healthy and something mm. right
2: mm-hmm.
1: morally right
2: yeah it's interesting I feel like the biggest the times that I've lost the most weight in my life have been like grief and depression and then you have like people congratulating you for like hey I know your grandfather died but you look amazing <laughs> <laughs> like, where you're like oh that doesn't feel great team that doesn't feel great I, it also feels like it leads to what are concretely and definitively unhealthy practices, right? Mm -hmm. That If you consider all weight loss to be healthy, then you go down the road of like flat tummy tea, which is just like straight up a laxative, congratulations. (laughs) You go down the road of diuretics, you go down the road of, you know, weight loss surgeries and weight loss injections, you get on the road of, oh, cripes, have you seen the dentist slim? Did no, you see what that the hell thing? is that? No. Oh, Jesus <laughs> crap. Okay. So the dentist Dentislim was a device that was proposed by a couple of researchers out of England and New Zealand, and it is a dental appliance that gets, no. oh yeah, your face is going where I'm going. <laughs> because For the listener, Marisol, horrified. It is essentially like a fancied up jaw wiring device that keeps your jaw closed with like ultra powerful magnets. It caused a big splash on Twitter, as you can imagine. And the researchers essentially defended it by being like, guys, calm down. we don't only give it to really fat people. It's totally fine. Where you're like, oh, it doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it better. Right? It is essentially the show Insatiable, the Netflix show Insatiable, like, come to life, where they're like, what if doctors did it, though? Um, it is, like... That's the road that leads you down. If your only and forever goal is to make fat people thin at all costs, you go to weird places and they are weird places that don't come from care for fat people. They don't benefit fat people. They make people who aren't fat feel like we're quote unquote doing something about the problem of fat, Mm -hmm. but they are at their core punitive and they are at their core ineffective and they're at their core like a fundamental disregarding of the needs and wants and experiences of fat people. It's real rough. It's real rough out there.
1: I want to talk to you a little bit about craft because there's a particular mm-hmm. myth 16. Oh. Is, is something that I really appreciated because you write in the second person. It starts out, I know that you have learned to hate your body. We've all been called fat. And... I feel like, again, I listened to the audiobook and read it, but like when you said that to me, I was like, oh, no one has said this to me yeah. before. Yeah. And once we distinguish the systemic problems of not having your mm-hmm. basic needs met. Yeah. Then there's the rest of this societal pressure. Yeah. And, and learning to distinguish between the two seems overwhelming sometimes totally I mean I think this is like
2: a really challenging part of this work for me is I feel increasingly clear the more that I do it (laughs) oh it feels like a grim realization but hello here we are that much of the garbage that gets foisted onto fat people is the garbage that non fat people have accrued from being threatened with becoming fat or mm-hmm. being told that they're fat or what have you? It creates this sort of spectrum of bodies, and anyone who's bigger than your size, whoever you are, becomes your nightmare future self, right? And you stop treating that person like a person who's different from you, who has their own life and experiences, and start. Treating them and talking to them as, you know, with sort of talk that we normally reserve for ourselves, right? The kind of criticism, the kind of hurt, and the kind of harm that we usually reserve for ourselves, we happily, openly foist onto fat people because we stop distinguishing between our own nightmare version of ourselves and somebody else entirely. And I have yet to figure out a way through that conversation with people who are not fat that doesn't require some level of like healing that person or like deep emotional support work, which is a challenging thing to do with a person who is hurting you right here, right now, right? Like, it's a challenging thing to be like, okay, I hear where you're coming from. That sounds really hard here's a bunch of empathy that I have to give for you. I'm going to sit with you for 30 minutes or an hour or days or whatever. And then once you feel filled up, once you feel like your tank is full, then we can talk about like, by the way, when you bring this stuff to these conversations, it really hurts me in these ways. It's a hard thing, but that second person stuff feels really important because unless and until people get their like amygdalas calmed down (laughs) right and unless and until people can just like hang with a conversation that isn't fundamentally about them there is a lot of sort of care and feeding that kind of needs to happen to bring folks into the room and that stuff felt like sort of an essential ingredient that I wish was less of an essential you know what I mean like I wish I could just be like I wrote a book about fat people that's what it's about (laughs) but like Boy, oh boy, there's like a lot of sort of groundwork to lay to get folks to the point where they can just hear out, here's what's going on with fat people. You know what I mean?
1: Uh, basic empathy. <laughs>
2: Imagine!
1: Imagine it! Yeah. <laughs> and I do think there there's something about fatness, but also, I mean, I'm diabetic. I have yeah. had many pregnant friends. There is something about having things going on with your body that somehow societally we Mm. feel is okay to talk Mm. about
2: and to offer advice about. Absolutely. I will absolutely never forget. I was 18 or 19. I took a gap year between high school and college and worked in an elementary school. And the school secretary was a fat lady and she was also pregnant. And boy oh boy it was a short staff school like every school everywhere short staff so she would just take her lunch at her desk and parents would come in to pick up their half-day kindergartners and every single day there were at least three comments about what she was eating I can't believe you're eating fish there's mercury in the fish right you worried about your kid or I can't believe you're eating blah blah and it was always like vegetables and elite protein and people like (laughs) found a way to take issue with like the most defensible sort of from a diet culture perspective meal that like exists right oh there's soy in there you're eating some tofu worried about the hormone imbalance no right like it is just astonishing to me and i think one of the things that feels tricky about some of those experiences is a handful of times folks figure out a path back to solidarity with fat people from those experiences Mm -hmm. But more often what folks do is say, but I'm not fat. Don't treat me like you treat fat people. Same that for them. I'm over here. I'm just pregnant. It's just temporary for me. Leave me alone. Or like, this is out of my control. I have X, Y, and Z health condition. So like, don't, I'm blameless here. And I think there is, it's totally understandable, right? Like you just want people to leave you alone. But I don't think folks necessarily realize that when they're doing that, they are like invoking a little bit of like a fat people human shield thing that happens, right? which is <laughs> sort of going, oh, the BMI is terrible because it thinks I, someone who is socially defined as a thin person is fat, not because it restricts access to healthcare for fat people, not because, you know, any number of other things. It's a tricky layered one because it's what people are going through is super duper real. And also that they are going down this path and take a sharp turn. And you're like, oh, no, buddies, come
1: on back. We were so close. You were onto something. (laughs) Please blame the aircraft not the person. (laughs) No one likes the seats on the plane, everybody. No one likes them. No one likes them. Let's all be mad at Delta. And and I do think, you know, again, I'm going back to making it about me. Mm, Good, go, do it. Really disgusted with the right wing rhetoric around insulin these days, Mm. because it's so, I have so many comments from trolls that are saying like, just lose weight. You don't need this life saving medication. (laughs) And who cares if it's- Oh no. Are you just like from where? What lead are you talking about? What's happening here? (laughs) Do you know that I'll still die?
2: Yeah, totally, totally like, yeah, there's an order of operations here team. (laughs)
1: It just seems like the easiest scapegoat for a real malfeasance that's happening in the pharmaceutical industry.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like, you know, a pretty good indicator of like, this is pretty much our knee-jerk response to many health conditions that we associate primarily with fatness, right? It's also an indication of just how ready people are to jump on fat people right? Like just how ready people are to just be like, it's actually your own fault. I don't have to listen to you. It also feels to me like in a very sad way, an adjustment to the reality that we live with a healthcare system that doesn't provide for most of us. So folks get into like real zero sum thinking about like, oh, I don't have what I need. So you definitely shouldn't have what you need you know, is, feels like some of the energy underneath some of that. I'm curious about for you, if you've done some unpacking of those comments for yourself, like, what do you, like, what do you feel like is the energy underneath that? What do you feel like is, like, where do you feel like that one's coming from?
1: I think it's tied to the moral equivalent that we give to how we look, Mm. what kinds of diseases we have as Mm. if like you are a bootstraps person and you should be Mm. able to take care of yourself and needing something Mm
2: -hmm. is a sign of weakness. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense to me. That makes a ton of sense to me. And there's something about the like refusal to engage part of it that feels Like the fundamental message is just like, shut up and go away. You're making me think about your experience and I don't want to do that. (laughs) You need this thing? Sorry, tough break. Like (laughs) everyone turns into Christian Bale on the set of Terminator. Like, oh, good for you. (laughs) Like that tape is like what I hear when those kinds of comments come in where I'm like, oh, cool. So you're being your worst self right now. That's neat. Oh, Boy, oh boy, I'm so sorry you're dealing with that. What an absolute I mean, garbage.
1: That that's not much. Every one of the other things I love about this book is that you constantly remind readers that this is not the definitive book.
0: No.
2: God, please on, no.
1: And so you constantly talk about other books you should read by other thinkers who've had different experiences Mm -hmm. than you, obviously. And I guess that's my segue into asking you to please recommend some books for us.
2: Yes, I will recommend two that are not in the book because they weren't out yet. So so new additions, all fresh, hello. One is I was absolutely like grabbed by the shoulders and shaken by this book in the best way is Weightless by Yvette Dion. Yvette is the former editor-in-chief of Bitch Magazine. I believe she's now with Yes. She's incredible. One of my favorite writers and thinkers on this topic and approaches her sort of experiences with chronic illness, with fatness. As a Black woman in this world, all of this sort of stuff, with a level of humility and accountability in that book that I find, like, absolutely incredible. She talks about her own anti-fatness quite a bit. It's, like, really wonderful. And the other one is by Virginia Soul Smith. It's coming out in a couple of months here. It's called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. Ooh. And I'll tell you what, it is such a deep dive into just the sort of quote-unquote childhood obesity epidemic part of this conversation and how anti-fatness shows up in schools and kids' sports and parent groups and everywhere. And in particular, I would say this is a book that parents of fat kids will absolutely pick up, and they totally should, I would argue that parents of thin kids need this a whole lot more because there is some really sharp discussion in the book, not only of how fat kids are sort of trained to passively accept abuse, but the ways that thin kids are quietly trained to exact that abuse at a time when they're picking up everything around them when they are sort of trusting in the adults around them and they are picking up on s- some of the most toxic traits from those adults, Ooh, it is a really thoughtful, compassionate, direct, just barber of a book. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah.
1: That's great. Yeah, there you go. Aubrey, thank you so much. This was Oh great. my God. It's such a treat to like finally actually talk to you. <laughs> you too. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.